I'm rather busy. Now he's going to move like right along to McGregor. That's his whole life. You know. So, Richard, you were very excited for the resolution of the season-ending cliffhanger for season two of the X Files. We have got it. It's a two-parter. What do you think? Well, I mean, it still feels like an action-packed thrill ride. It didn't really. I mean, at the end of Paperclip, I don't feel I wouldn't even say it's resolved. Like it, it's just the next beat in the story. But I like what's happening. These were, these were six satisfying next parts. I want to know what's happening more, and yet I feel like, you know, what what we've learned is exciting. Again, not really expecting this to tie into a neat little package at the end. And already, even I'm seeing a little bits of trying to shove stuff in there that doesn't necessarily fit and it's leaking out and you know he's so far I think Chris Carter is still trying to keep everything in the bag but I get the understanding that later seasons will not be you know he'll give up and just be telling whatever he's interested in at the moment that said what's going on is really exciting I'm really I'm with the show yeah yeah it's funny because like watching these episodes now and and knowing you know where the show goes in the next few seasons and and where the the mythology episodes or the mythology storyline yeah. eventually ends up it, it's very interesting to watch the show kind of i think really come into its own in these like yeah. three episodes i'm i'm including Anasazi of course in yeah, this yeah, whole yeah. plot line because it is like a three-parter it, it's interesting because you know Chris Carter i think has a lot of really uh, um strong tendencies as a writer and then he has some some bad Mm -hmm. tendencies as a writer and i think that these two episodes which i believe he wrote both of them uh if my notes are to be believed and i think they are because i took them um is that he knows how to construct very very elaborate sort of political thriller Mm -hmm. at the same time his sort of ponderous uh, voiceovers they're <laughs> almost almost like i mean they're almost parodies of themselves at this point we've we've gotten a lot of them already in the show is really really laying them on thick i don't even really know how much you have to pay attention to them i just basically yeah. listen to them for flavor and and this kind these two episodes kind of feature all of that they also introduce some new elements mm. to the mythology storyline. We, we'll talk about 40, 46th Street, New York City, because uh, something's going on there. And, and, and But at the same time, like it feels like the show is is transitioning into being a slightly different show, yeah. if you know what I mean. Well, I mean, the sense that I'm getting from these episodes is, I, I mean, I would say Chris Carter's strength and weakness is the same thing, and that's that it's that he's really fucking passionate about this. Like, there is a degree to watching this feels like watching, you know, something a 16-year-old is writing. Like, it's this really elaborate, and he he really cares about what's going on. Like, there there is... Nobody on the creative staff is bored at this point. Everybody's having a really great time. Everybody's really invested in this. And some parts are a little sloppy or a little unwound. Well... It's again just a manifestation of that extraordinarily passion, uh, extraordinary passion between behind this. I would say, it's it's it's. I mean, I I I am seeing something kind of beautiful in its exuberance. Yeah, no, I would agree with that because I think one of the things that that I always appreciate the most about the X Files is, you know, a lot of shows. The X Files really did, in some senses, set the template for. 
you know, serialized television. Mm. And it was, it was extremely influential as we've talked about, and, you know, we'll, and we'll continue to talk about as, as these podcasts go on. And, and this is the show right when it was about to blow up. Uh, it was still being aired at 9 PM on Friday yeah. nights, but next season it moves to uh, uh, Sundays, I think at eight or nine that that's a much better time slot, obviously. And so it, it was really starting to percolate through the culture and you can see the show, I think starting to fall in love with itself in the in in the sense that uh, it knows people are watching, it knows people are really engaged yeah. with the show, and it's really starting to become very popular. And Chris Carter is is completely, I think, falling into that, and and not in a bad way. I don't mean that in no. a bad way. No, like and it's the, it's. I mean, in a way, it's giving gifts to the people who have been watching it. Like the appearance of Deep Throat in the first episode. There is no explanation who he is, but you know, it's the fans are into this, and Chris Carter is really into showing them this. Yeah. And and I think that, you know, funnily enough, talking about what other shows that have been influenced by the X-Files failed at, I think is a good way to illustrate these two episodes and why the X-Files work so well mm. is because, you know, The Blessing Way and Paperclip are almost entirely plot. It moves so yeah. quickly that you really just you're almost like getting senses of plot it's not even really making a whole lot of sense but like if you sit back and you think about what was going on yeah, or yeah. you can pick holes into it but you know for example like why did uh, uh melissa use her key to go into scully's apartment when she thought she was home you know stuff yeah. like that um but but that's not really the point of it and like what i think is so interesting about the blessing way and paperclip and i'll, I'll include anasazi in that as well is that these are two very, very plot-heavy episodes that are almost sort of these impressionistic plots in a way. Like, they don't—they matter, but they don't really matter. And and what you're getting out of this is—because these are not really strong character episodes. There's not a lot of character work in here. Mm. But the show has done enough with the characters that it, it really does carry you through— you know the the mythology and the plot of these episodes is is not the point. It's almost, you know, it's almost the 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 sort of like sugar with your with your medicine in a way. Like this is not really what people are watching the show for, but it's kind of like what's driving them to continue to watch in a sense. If you know what I mean. I mean, it all feels very archetypal to me. Again, uh, and nothing is as strong as the scene last week with. Again, that shadowy chain of phone calls or, you know, in these episodes where you have these people meeting in this room and discussing the conspiracy, like it doesn't matter if we can trace who all of these people are, what we are just getting. Again, there is something just very deus ex about this. There is something very just like cheesy in a way that I appreciate just because these particular archetypes, again, maybe by virtue of the time I grew up in, uh, they hit the right notes for me. I think it's, it's yeah. <laughs> well, we, well, I mean, like speaking of the time we grew up in, like th- this is also an extremely nineties television yeah. show. And like every time that I see the picture of Janet Reno in Skinner's office, like even though Janet Reno was kind of a horrible attorney yeah. general, like, you know, it, it's kind of like, Oh yeah, that's right. The nineties and Bill <laughs> Clinton was president and, you know, pogs were popular, <laughs> whatever, you know, but it is, yeah, you're right. Like it is the case that a lot of this feels very cheesy, but at the same time, it, it's I, beautifully This is cheesy. the kind of thing that I, you know, like a hair metal yeah. song. Like as dumb as it is, like I fucking love this. Right, because the show, I don't think it would work if the show was deliberately not taking this seriously. Yeah, the, no. the, Chris Carter and the show 
are taking this seriously. Yeah. And that is why it works. There is nothing – there is no ironic distance. This is not a snarky show. Even as quippy as Mulder and Scully can be, it is not a sarcastic show. Like, there is – Maybe naivete isn't the quite the word for it, but that's basically, I think, the sense we're getting at. Like, it's earnest. Yeah, like he thinks this is really cool, and uh, and therefore, by extension, that that it's very contagious. You know, this is this is a really. I, I get the sense that Chris Carter is a really dorky guy, like the lone gunman that we see, like the random hackers. That like that's who I think Chris Carter is. And the fact that he's just so into this is very infectious. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree <laughs> with that. And I and I think where you see that most clearly is, you know, the show is obviously developing some new ideas, and the show is obviously spinning off into different directions. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, let, let's talk about Forty Sixth Street, New York yeah. City, then, because I think it's really, uh, you know, the show is spinning off into so many different directions at this point, and it's introducing yeah. new ideas and new concepts. We don't know a lot about that room. We don't know a lot about the men in it. But I think that the show, I mean, as you said, the show is a little bit archetypal. And that room and the people in it are, yeah. are, are I think, the clearest example of that. Because what we have in that room are, you know, stereotypical, you know, cis, white, straight guys in suits sitting around in a dark room drinking and smoking and, you know, yeah. coming up with plans for world domination, essentially. And if you look at it on the level, it's ridiculous. But the show believes that this is true. Yeah. And the show obviously is taking this room and the people in it deadly seriously. And so and we we buy into it because of that reason. And in a way, it's a metonym for something that I think we do believe is very real. I mean, you use that phrase, this is a bunch of white cis old men. I mean, that that is itself an archetype these days, and that represents, I think, the horrors of capitalism, which not all white cis men, yes, and there are plenty of, you know, black women capitalists out there, but generally that the representation of damaging capitalism is you know the dude from monopoly and right. uh, even if there is not a literal room full of shady figures who are planning how to screw over the rest of the world uh and deciding you know what uh, we do get reports i think the other week it was something like eight people eight men own like 75% of the what was the figure but like these kind of yeah these are the uh, uh, um, uh, you know, this room is representing that. Yeah, yeah, and and I think you know w what is also interesting about it, of course, is that the the cigarette smoking man, whose name we still don't know, um, is you know the, for the past two seasons he has been the literal boogeyman. Yeah, he has been the the face of the conspiracy in shadow. You know, Skinner has a relationship with him. The cigarette smoking man obviously has the power in that relationship, and that is shifted by the end of these two episodes, mm. of course, at least a little bit. But the cigarette smoking man has been uh, the antagonist. Yeah. And what we see in these two episodes, and this is kind of a, I think it's kind of a, a, a maybe a, a daring yeah. or, you know, this could go wrong, really, is that they show him as maybe not. Uh, uh, the person with the power yeah. and that the rest of the men in this conspiracy uh, either don't like him or don't trust him or don't think he's very competent and or, he's lying to them. I, I mean, I would say it's even less 
invested than that, I mean, I think this is a case where one fewer person means, you know, fewer people to share the spoils with. Like, I think it's that kind of. I, sure. I, I will get, I will be very surprised if this conspiracy doesn't turn on itself more as the show goes on. But yeah, every man in that room is another avatar of the cigarette smoking man has that level of power in their own sub branch of the government, whether they are all working for nominally for or within the United States or for other countries. Um, and you get a bunch of them turning against one of them. All the power that he has is irrelevant because there's six times the amount of power against him. And yeah. it's it's both satisfying because he is an asshole and a little terrifying to watch the cigarette smoking man get so frazzled and be so desperate at this point. We because not only is a desperate cigarette smoking man going to be a very dangerous thing, um which we've already seen he is. I yeah. mean, Mulder's or Scully's sister is, is murdered in this episode. Yeah, which is both, again, a very dangerous thing and also a sign of his incompetence. But um, the. Yeah, like, I don't know if he should really be relying on Krychek, <laughs> which he kind of realizes, you know, to to his credit, yeah. in paperclip and tries to kill Krychek. But anyway, Um but well, yeah, I, I mean, it, it makes one even more aware of the power of the conspiracy, and that's the real terrifying thing. And I also get the sense that there is a, a, a further layer beyond the conspiracy. If these are just U.S. people, there's the worldwide thing, and there is the alien faction in play. This is not taking the aliens into account at all, really. Yeah. Well, yeah, and we'll we'll talk about the aliens because, of course, there's there's at least a couple different groups of yeah. aliens. But I, I want to say one last thing about about the conspiracy room, and and then we can talk about a little bit about the cigarette smoking man, and then maybe go into the alien stuff. Because hmm. the, the last thing I want to say about about the conspiracy room is that it is it is very indicative. I think it's very uh, interesting that the conspiracy is not based in Washington D.C. And yeah. the idea, you know, we, you've kind of said that you thought the cigarette smoking man worked for the CIA or worked for the Pentagon or worked for the FBI or something. Doesn't seem to be the case, right? And yeah. so the idea, you know, Mulder's always been under the impression that it's been the United States government that has been covering these this alien stuff up for all these years. Maybe it's not. Like, who are these guys? Why are they not in Washington, D.C. if they are actually part of the government? Now, yeah. they, you know, who knows? I mean, Mulder's father was a part of this group for a while. They said that they were he worked for the State Department. You know, we don't know. We could speculate. We could say they used to work for the State Department and then they spun out because they knew all this stuff. I mean, we don't know. But I just think it's interesting that they're not in Washington, D.C. Yeah, well, again, this is a... This is a story about America, right? And even though the government is headed in Washington, D.C., and uh, I would say flows from Washington, D.C., there is still, you know, the government everywhere <laughs> in the nation. If this, if the government conspiracy or whatever conspiracy is as powerful as it says it is, and I would assume it's at least this powerful based on what we've seen so far, it is going to be able to have a reach no matter where it's located in. So, yeah. yeah, and again, especially consider that we are talk. I am talking about this conspiracy as an avatar of capitalism. New York City is a pretty good place to have that. Yeah, that that is certainly true. 
Um, well, well, let's talk about the cigarette smoking man a little bit more then, because I think he's got a couple of interesting mm. scenes in, in these two episodes. And I, the the first one that I'm thinking of is, I think it's the scene in the blessing way when he's in Skinner's office, or maybe it's paperclip. I don't know. They kind of run together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, two partners tend to do that. That. You know, he, he's there. He's trying to get the tape from Skinner. That's very, very interesting, very important idea of this tape. It's the MacGuffin of the entire, yeah. you know, three-parter that's driving the entire the entirety of the action. Uh, but he gets flustered. He's yelling at Skinner. Mm. He's obviously frustrated and worried. And we've never seen him like that before. Yeah, because he does. Well, so let me, tr- I, I, I'd like to trace where the tape goes in this. Um, okay, sure. Because I think part of my confusion does have to so so Mulder has the tape right uh, he, yeah so so the guy the thinker that we see in Anasazi yeah. who lives in Dover Delaware uh, ha, you know has the tape the dat tape gives it to Mulder uh, Mulder keeps it in his office and mm. then Skinner finds it somehow yeah and yeah takes it okay from, and then, from his office so in the hospital when Skinner is attacked by. Uh, Crycheck and the other guy, they take the tape. Is that the actual tape? I think so. Uh, now, this this is going to give me some thoughts on Skinner, which is that... He's a little bit too confident of his own abilities. I wonder if that's actually intentional, because you, I'm beginning to get the sense that Skinner may have been a better field agent than a, than kind of a, a, a an assistant director. I almost wonder if he's been promoted to a spot where he's useful enough to the cigarette smoking man, and that he can be manipulated, he can be pushed into certain sure. things, which are but not useful or enough to actually cause any damage. I think that's the, the intention of getting of why the powers that be let Skinner get to that point. Yeah, I actually, yeah, I, I think that's an interesting reading of Skinner's actions in in Paperclip, and I I, I would go with that. I mean, yeah. I think that you know Skinner's a Skinner's an interesting character, obviously, and 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 Skinner is full of contradictions, and we are not really. You know, we are clued in to some degree to the internal lives of Mulder and the internal lives yeah. of of Scully, but we don't really know anything about Skinner. And yeah. we see Skinner through the eyes of Mulder and Scully most, you know, basically all the time. Uh, he's a guy in an office that sometimes helps them and sometimes is very, very yeah. um, restrictive and, and, and a roadblocky to them. And we don't have a, lot, a good sense of what his real motivations yeah. are. Now, I think it becomes a little more clear in these two episodes. Because we start to but, see him by himself or at least with the cigarette smoking man. And Skinner is obviously our focal character in that scene. Yeah, and 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 much much later in this season, we we do actually get a Skinner focused episode, oh, which is one of my favorites of this of the entire series. Actually, it's really good. Yeah. Um, that kind of goes into his character more, but you know, we'll we'll talk about that in a few weeks. Um, just you know, a little promise yeah. for you. I guess uh, I don't know what Skinner's ultimate goal is. We know what Mulder and Scully's goals are: is the service of the truth. But well, there are a lot of times where. Skinner feels like he could be lying or playing his cards close to his chest, and he's being obstructive to Mulder and Scully to get certain plausibility deniability, but he's going to help them out later on. Or, you know, I mean, I there are. I I mean, I I think that for what my read on Skinner has always been that 
he is someone who, like you said, was a really good field agent. You know, I, I think him keeping the tape on himself, going off by himself to mm-hmm. find this guy. I mean, that was an obvious ploy to get the tape stolen yeah. because he wanted to make them think that the, he had no leverage over them. And, of course, at the end of, of Paperclip, it's revealed that uh, uh, basically, mm. you know, 20, 20 people all throughout the country, like, have uh, uh, the knowledge of this tape. And so he, he's he got one over on the cigarette smoking man and the conspiracy. Okay. So, so that... that's, that's this elaborate plan that Skinner has put into motion, right? And I, I think it works. And I think it shows mm. him thinking through the ramifications of his own actions. And he's able to formulate a plan to, to really sort of box in the conspiracy. Okay. Now, yeah, the, no, no, I didn't. I didn't. That was, I think, the final piece that clicked for me because he's acting like, you know, when he talks to the cigarette smoking man, he's acting like the tape wasn't stolen, but he's get, okay, okay, I'm with it now. Yeah, and so what I what I think Skinner Skinner's motivations to me seem clear here, which is that he is very very protective of his agents, and you know he he most likely has other agents that report to him. Yeah. They are not embroiled in a massive government conspiracy. <laughs> They're, you know, working on bank robberies or whatever. But I'm sure that he's as protective of every other agent yeah. that reports to him as Mulder and Scully are. It's just that, you know, 5% of your employees take up 75% of your time, right? Yeah. Like, that's always <laughs> the thing. But but also the fact that I think for, for Skinner, he is protective of Mulder and Scully. And he is really hard on them. And he is really mm. pushing them to bring him irrefutable proof because he knows that that's the way to protect them. If they come to him half cocked and say, Hey, we've yeah. got this blah, blah, blah. And he's like, well, that's not good enough. You need to be, you need to have irrefutable ironclad proof that can stand up in a court of law that this is going on. And if you bring me some half ass yeah, yeah. document that you found in some guy's trunk in New Jersey, that is not verifiable in any way. That's not going to help you, and that's going to actually endanger you because yeah. you are going to become. And as I think we see in these three episodes, I mean, let's not forget that the conspiracy was drugging the entire yeah. apartment building's water supply that Mulder lives in just to discredit him. That they're worried about him, but they're not that worried about him because he's a little bit half cocked. Yeah, Scully tries, I think, but she's not. She's not Skinner. You know, she yeah. is not the the person who is kind of playing both sides to get to the truth. And so I think that's really what's going on with Skinner. Okay. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, because it is true. Mulder has – Mulder can be easily manipulated. He has been easily manipulated by fake, de- fake evidence before. And all he needs to do is present – one, maybe two cases that turn out to be complete fabrications and he looks like an asshole and then he's the boy who cried wolf. And I think it's, mm-hmm. yeah, Skinner is trying to, Skinner and, and Scully are in their boat, both in their ways trying to make sure that Mulder is not crying wolf. It's just, I don't know, Skinner, Skinner has an arrogance to him. I mean, there is that... Which I think is part of why he and Mulder just don't really work well together, because Mulder does have a bit of an arrogance to him, too. Um, I mean, Skinner has the arrogance of, I'm in charge, I'm in control, and I really know what's going on a little better than you do, so you've bet you know, listen to me. And Mulder has the arrogance of, I'm the cool guy, I'm the guy who really knows what's going on, I really am clued into what's happening, and therefore... You know, I'm cutting through all of this bullshit and the two of them are going to cross 
at, just based on that one point, Scully really being the mediator. But I mean, I'm thinking that ex- that that exchange about you know underestimating your position in the chain of command uh, that Scully accuses of him of. I think there is a degree to which Skinner can't quite sometimes doesn't quite click to how small he is compared to this conspiracy. And I also don't know, and I think this is part of where Skinner's internal life is a mystery to me. I don't know if he legitimately, like, are his plans in this episode the result of him finally waking up, realizing this thing is bigger than the three of us times a huge factor and I need to step up my game in order to outplay them? Or has Skinner always been that savvy and is just trying to make himself look a little more ineffective so that way he's watched a little less? I I think it's probably that, honestly. You know, I I think that that Skinner... I don't know, because it it, it really does, in some sense, put Skinner's actions in the past season into into more of a context. Because, you know, for example, like when he, uh, uh, you know, kind of tried to get one up on the cigarette smoking man by putting a no smoking sign in his office, like... Was that him actually trying to do that or was that him trying to make the cigarette smoking man think that he was more ineffectual than he actually was? Like, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like there's there's an element. I mean, and you could spin this out in many different yeah. directions. I, I mean, you could keep saying, you know, well, I, I who knows? But, you know, Skinner didn't clean his toilet because he knew the cigarette smoking man would come over. And, you know, I mean, like it's just you could just spin all these crazy yeah. things out all the time. And I mean, to me, that scene was certainly, you know, passive aggressive. I don't think. Obviously, Skinner doesn't give a shit about the battle of who is smoking in his office, but I think in a way there is a pettiness to it. Like, I'm going to put a no smoking sign. You're a move. Oh, you're going to smoke in my office. Oh, yeah, you've got so much power. How dare you? Like, I think there's, you know, it's beginning to see to me that maybe that's the attitude that Skinner is having. Like, he is going to let every... He is going to let people think they're getting one over on him while he just quietly slips under and just, you know, make sure that this code is disseminated. Yeah, because, it, well, it's better to be underestimated than mm. overestimated, I think, because, you know, Skinner is able to to pull off this elaborate plan and, and, and get one over on the cigarette smoking man and protect Mulder and Scully and get them both reinstated, of course, um, because he is underestimated yeah. by the cigarette smoking man and the rest of the conspiracy, you know, whereas Mulder and Scully spend most of the episode on the run because they're trying, yeah. <laughs> they're, 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 you know, people are trying to murder them. And mm-hmm. so it's like, that's not a great way to uncover the conspiracy. I mean, we do get that, that great sequence in the, the coal mine or whatever in West Virginia, which uh, Mengele tells them about, um, mm-hmm. where it's like this huge records vault with with all of the birth certificates and vaccination records for, for everyone in America born after 1950. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is real. You know, I mean, like, man, it's too bad the computers weren't invented in 1948. Uh-uh. But, uh, you know, it is the case that, like, they're, they're, they're given opportunities to have really good scenes. But in a weird way, Mulder and Scully are not the protagonists of these episodes. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, this is a, certainly a world-building and a theme-building episode. This is about broadening it up uh, and fleshing out, again, fleshing out the plot of what's going on, the, the world that they're living in. And right. know, Mulder and Scully are going to be a small part of that because, again, we are dealing with forces that are huge. 
Yeah, well, like perfect example. The the show, these two episodes are really throwing so much information at us that that I think the show kind of forgets sometimes what it's some of its plot points because yeah. we've got that we've got those weird scenes in in the blessing way where which uh, uh you know Scully is going through the metal detector and then eventually yeah. it turns out that she's got this computer chip inside of her and. I don't know. Like they just forget about that, or they seem to. I like, forgot about that. Yeah, right. Like it doesn't I, go anywhere. And so, is it just kind of this thing where it's like, "Whoa, that's weird. What's going on?" Or is that going to? Did they mean for that to go somewhere? Who knows? Well, I mean, I'm putting that in a bucket with uh, Scully's name being in the reports, and they also have her, you know, tissue samples. I mean, the the the, the three scenes individually don't really matter it doesn't really matter what it says about skelly or what the computer chip is exactly but i mean they are pointing towards some kind of experimentation happened on skelly there is somebody having interest in her and something or other and i i mean i'm putting a big stay tuned on that like this is this feels like you know those three elements feel like the first beat of the major arc that Scully is going to be dealing with this season, which is something happened to her. What was it? I mean, didn't she fly commercially at some point in the mm-hmm. last like few months? Like and, why? And, and I also don't think that metal detectors are that sensitive, at least especially not in the nineties where it like a centimeter big chip is going, you know, implanted in her neck. And we, and we also don't know what metal it's made out of either, but I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know if, I mean, computer chips usually silicon, so yeah. I don't necessarily think that a metal detector would even pick that up. But, but... I mean, it, it we're assuming alien technology, so okay, it's made out of iron. But again, it's... Now, it, it it also gets us the opportunity to to meet the uh, um, you know the security guard who has a crush on Scully. Aww. I I want to spin off with that guy. I love <laughs> him. I think he's great. Like he's he. I don't know. There's just something about about that security guard and those two brief scenes and his <laughs> two brief appearances where I'm like, yeah, I want to know more about that guy. What's up with that guy? I mean, I feel like that way about most of the. Again, we, we we've said this. A lot of the texts that they meet, uh, they do really good jobs of giving them characters. You know, the and. Remember the handwriting lady who was, you know, hitting on Mulder. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, we, you know, we see a lot of it. There's a lot of interesting people that we meet at, at our tertiary cast. So yeah, I would love to see the show that's just them dealing with, you know, workplace soap opera stuff, and it has nothing to do with aliens or mysteries or the conspiracy, but it's just their lives. Right. Yeah. Well, speaking of secondary or tertiary characters. Uh, I don't know that the show, the show introduces uh, the character of Joseph. The show introduces these Indians. Uh, they're very important to the resolution of the plot of these two episodes. What is driving yeah. Skinner, Mulder, and Scully and the conspiracy throughout this entire three-parter. Uh, and, and they're also instrumental, of course, in, in saving Mulder's life in the blessing way. And, and I, you know, I'm assuming we will at some point talk about the dream sequences because I'm sure you have something to say about those. But, <laughs> How do I? Uh, like, I know you at this point. Like, you have something to say about that. I love dream um, sequences. And I hate them. So it's a <laughs> conversation. But or, or are they dream sequences? I don't know. But like to some degree, like I, I feel like it. I don't, I'm not really, uh, uh, um, I'm not 
well-versed enough in Navajo mythology mm. to know whether or not this is a real thing. And I'm not really prepared to even talk about it because I don't know if it is or not. Maybe Chris Carter did a bunch of research. It, he it had the guy feels... from Voyager tell him about the ceremony. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Like, it, it, it certainly feels more authentic than like what was going on in say shapes for instance well um but at the same time there's a bit of distance from those characters and it does kind of like the character of joseph especially kind of does fall into um you know that that kind of uh i don't know like magical negro sort of character yeah well you know it's it's a little bit problematic i'm finding i have some very specific thoughts on this which is that I mean, it's I, I, I think the term problematic is the only one that I can use here because, I mean, it is problematic in the way this – in the sense that the magical Negro is problematic. I mean, so Stephen King is like the archetypal guy who uses that trope, and he has since in interviews and stuff, you know, said – since aware he since he became more aware of the trope and people talked to him, he initially began to use the you know black character who is so noble and so great because he has very strong sympathies for the way that black people have been treated in this country, and so it's kind of an overcorrection. All right, instead of portraying these people as thugs and criminals, they're going to be saints, and it's very well intentioned, but of course begins to be its own stereotypes. And so then you have to figure out uh, how to, how to write these characters more well-rounded. I think that is part of what's going on here, especially given that the Navajo are used as the antithesis of the government conspiracy. Again, one of the big themes of the X-Files is that there is a too high of a price to pay for technology. In this, we see the, me- the, the clear example is the scientific advances that were made by Nazi experimentation on humans. And that is something that Scully in particular uh, views as so beyond the pale. There is no way of just – no amount of scientific progress justifies that. Uh, and the – it's not for nothing that the side of scientific progress is the one who physically beats a bunch of Native Americans and has, you know, done so many horrible things to those people over the course of American history. Contrasting this is the Navajo who are doing the spiritual healing, who don't need all of this ill-gotten technological advances to understand you know, what makes humans tick. We don't need to vivisect people to understand them. We need to just observe nature and honor the spirits and all of those kind of things. Um, And especially at the ending in which we have several technological means of storing records, but the one which trumps everything else is just people talking to each other, the oral tradition of our people and all of that. Um, Again, I think the Navajo are used for some excellent thematic and archetypal uh, means in these episodes. I think they very strongly bring out the themes that Carter has been building over the course of the show. At the same time, they are an actual group of people, and it is a little questionable to use them in such a way. I think there is a degree to which I have to give this a pass because this is the mid-90s, which was 20 years ago, and times have well, hopefully changed. I think some people have certainly gotten more aware of the issues surrounding these things. But Mm -hmm. um, let me put it this way. If the current seasons of the X-Files are still using 
these tropes in this way, it's going to be very awkward. You know, the, at this point, you can say, well, it was a different time and I was a lot younger and not as, you know, realized. And at the end of the day, I wasn't trying to do anything. You know, it, I, this isn't coming from a place of oppressing the, the Navajo in this. It's trying to use them for maybe too nice of a gesture. If that makes sense. Yeah, I, I yeah, I, I, I think I agree with that because and I will just say as an aside that it, it is probably a an indication of the show's increasing confidence in itself that uh, it is mostly able to pull off a quarry in Vancouver, British Columbia, <laughs> um, you know, as Arizona yeah. or wherever they're supposed to be, um, even though they don't do like the best job of it. But they, they do an OK job of it because um, they don't didn't actually go film in Arizona. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is that I agree with all of that. And I think that it 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 is a laudatory instinct i think for for chris carter and the show mm. to want to use the navajo this this like really really strong example of um the the native american cultures that were decimated and 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 you know the genocide of the native americans by by white people essentially and not um, for nothing again the navajo were used as as codes in navajo language was used as a code in world war 2 again an yeah, I mean, example of the people being used by the government. Yeah, like Joseph, of course, he they say explicitly that he was a code talker mm-hmm. in World War II. So that that link is right there. Um but but at the same time, like I I'm with you on all of that, but I just keep coming back to the idea of the character of Joseph and how he's not. I a thought person. his name was Albert. Maybe it's Albert. I don't even know his name. Yeah. That's a thing. Like who knows? Okay, let's call him Albert then. I don't know where I got Joseph from. Um but like the character of Albert because yeah. Who is he? What are his motivations? Yeah. Why is he like rescuing all these white people? <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. Like, and that's that's really the problem here is that 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 he's a non he is a ma- he's a magical Navajo character. Yeah. Like, he saves Mulder with the with the Hogan. I mean, it's a great scene. You know, those are those are great scenes. But at the same time, like, why does he fly to Washington D.C. to like help out Scully's sister? How did she like? There's there's a disconnect there that I, I find problematic like i i don't think that there's like a huge amount to say about it because albert is not a huge part of the episode yeah. but then it's at the same time like he is these two episodes are really in a certain sense told through his point of view mm. because he is giving all of the uh voiceovers that Mulder or scully would normally give yeah, yeah, yeah um but at the same time like we don't know anything about him so the show keeps telling us that he's very very important that the way he's looking at the world is very important that it is contextualizing these episodes through Navajo mythology. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing about the white buffalo in the second episode, for example, and how, you know, the mother dies and Melissa dies and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But, like, it's a little bit half-baked, and I'm not sure what the show is trying to do with it, essentially. You know, I couldn't help but compare Mulder's, you know, between-death scenes to Scully's from One Breath. And... Yeah, yeah, I agree. I don't think that's unintentional, of course, but... Um, they're trying to make Joe Albert be an equivalent of the nurse from One Breath, who... I prefer Alsif, but okay. Alsif, that's... Fu- actually, I do too. Thank you for... <laughs> um, and that nurse was seen as not... was not treated as a person with an internal life, given especially the reveal toward at the end of the episode that perhaps she was a... I mean, the implication is that she is a divine being, that she's possibly an angel or something like that. It, it, yeah, and like, and I get that, fine. but at the same time, like, 
but well, right but like but, 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 but like maybe this is maybe i'll just say this maybe okay. this is my maybe this is my problem maybe i'm the problem here but like I just feel like she wasn't a problem in one breath because she was a white lady. Well, I, you know, I would, I, I'm going to go a little further and without dealing with white lady because she wasn't a person. She was an ambiguous element. Alsif is an actual person who has an actual family who has lived an actual life. Like, it's not like he is somebody who. Every morning he wakes up, he goes downstairs and has breakfast with his son and grandson. He hangs out and he's teaching kids or whatever. Like, he is a person with an internal life, and yet he is treated as an ambiguous spiritual being. And so there is, you know, if we saw the nurse talking to... I mean, we don't see the nurse interacting with anybody else. If we saw a scene where the nurse was chatting with the other another nurse about oh man the coffee's so bad in this hospital it's hard to make it through a shift like if we had that scene yeah. i would have a the, similar problem the, with it the phone rings and it's the the nurse's daughter and she's like where's the peanut butter yeah now? like we you know we we are never given the sense that the nurse has an internal life and so again the reveal that she is an ambiguous divine being fits with that treating Alciv as a divine spiritual being when he is clearly a human person is where I think it begins to fall for me. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. Certainly. I mean, it's, again, I can see him, he he sees a stranger who is sick and die, dying. I will believe that he is a person who will do what he can to save him just because he's a good guy. Who You know, if you have, if you have the opportunity to help someone, you take it. That's fine, but as you say, well, he didn't have any, you know, wh- what he didn't have anything else on his schedule that he can just fuck off to uh, Washington for a week. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, and I think that this is a good segue into talking about Mulder's, uh, you know, end of life sequences in, in yeah. the blessing way, of course, because one of the sort of, I think, unstated assumptions or implications that the blessing way is making about alsif's relationship with Mulder is that they there is some sort of spirituality in the sense that they found him in the desert and he was still alive and it has resonances to these navajo stories about how the animals survive in the desert and then they decide to take him to the hogan and perform this blessing way ritual they all really like him of course like he's charming and funny and who doesn't like Mulder? yeah um, he's got that great joke about his social life when they tell him he can't bathe for four days. Um, but, like, what are we supposed to get out of those sequences of yeah. Mulder? Like, is is his work unfinished? Is that what is they're saying? That, that you know, Deep Third and his father are both telling Mulder basically the same thing? You know, and they're also not telling Mulder anything he doesn't know. Again, I thought that was very carefully done in that... They do want to leave it ambiguous as to whether this is an actual experience he is speaking to the spirits of Deep Throat and his father or some other even third entity in the guises of them. Um, I mean, I have to say, I was laughing during those sequences because, you know, my boyfriend and I were watching it and we were joking like, okay, this guy's been in the desert for three days. Like, you don't give him water. You just put him in a hut and burn smoke all the time. Like, he's going to be, you know... I, I think they have at one point, like, on the third day, he caught, you know, called for water. Finally, he's been calling for water this whole time. Um, I think this is this is the X-Files showing its Twin Peaks 
influence very much. It very much wanted to do a dream sequence like this, and sure, maybe it goes on a little too long. Do we necessarily need to have the conversations between both Deep Throat and Mulder's father? I don't know, especially when they are both talking in these ponderous tones and again saying basically the same things and saying nothing that Mulder doesn't know. Well, I mean, I, I would, I mean, I would, I would disagree with you a little bit. Okay. I think that, well, part part of the for two two things. Number one is that I think that the the water thing is interesting only in so much as the I think the idea of the blessing way ceremony is that you 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 need to want to live or something, right? Yeah, so and I get what it's they don't really necess- doing. Yeah, they they don't take him to the hospital and give him intravenous fluids because <laughs> you know it's mi- mystical. Blah blah blah. Um, I I think it is necessary for both. Deep Throat and Mulder's father to to show up mm. in his dreams because Deep Throat was a very influential person on Mulder's life. I think more influential yeah. and, and he cared more about Deep Throat. And I think Deep Throat cared about Mulder in yeah. a way that was almost a surrogate father-son relationship. I, I We don't really get a good sense of what Mulder's relationship with his father was like, but it doesn't seem like it was that great. It mm. seems like it was strained. And so, especially with the revelations that occur in these two episodes, mm. that, you know, Mulder's father essentially uh, chose which child of his would get abducted for various reasons that we're not really sure about, and that ended his marriage. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think it's important that both of them are essentially telling Mulder the same thing, because That's it fair. indicates that that's the right path forward for Mulder. I mean, I did find it very significant that, you know, here Deep Throat is appearing as the first person that he sees. And yeah, it it did feel very powerful. And I guess, especially making that, we do want to see Mulder talking to his father because he is, you know, if Deep Throat's going to be there, his father should be there too, as you say. Um, Yeah. And and I think that, that, you know... I don't know. It's hard because we haven't dealt a lot about a lot of the revelations that that Mulder's father was was involved with the conspiracy. Yeah. But at the same time, I think it's one of those things that it. I don't know. It it makes Mulder's quest a lot smaller, but I don't know in a bad way. If you know what I mean, like mm. it 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 in a certain sense, it does feel a little small universe syndrome. Like what? I mean, why? <laughs> you know, like what is going on here? But I don't know. It it all kind of works. I think that. You know, the show is spinning out so many different things now, and the show is increasingly making this much more complicated than maybe it needs to be. But I don't know. I don't know. It's it's because, still mostly working. Well, I would say this all I mean, they talk a little bit about fate in this, and I do feel like I can see the influence of Mulder's father racked with guilt from his choice, subtly trying to push his son towards eventually going into the FBI and, you know, sure. where he will be able to, like, it, 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 I almost get the sense of the elder Mulder feeling his hands are tied and trying to use his son as the way of getting justice. I mean, that to me, it doesn't seem to make it smaller. It makes this journey a lot more powerful and personal, I'd say. Yeah. And I also think it, it it is, you know, maybe this is the last thing to say, is that in a certain sense, Deep Throat and Mulder's father both came to the same place, mm. only Mulder's father completely threw up his hands and, and, and left the conspiracy, whereas Deep Throat was still yeah. um, working in it and, and kind of playing both sides, you know, <laughs> against each other in a certain sense. And 
there there is an element here which is that we don't know a lot about what the conspiracy is doing still i mean we we have aliens running around yeah. in this episode and you know who knows what's going on there um there there's a mention of alien human hybrids again you know for the first time and uh uh, uh the you know uh, the the you know non-union mengala is is doing something <laughs> with that but at the same time Mulder's father is gone now deep throat is gone now so so the the men in the conspiracy that were the ones that were the most object that were objecting to it most yeah. strenuously uh, are both dead. We've also got the British guy that is kind of we don't know what his object we don't know what his motivations are mm. here either. Yeah. Um, but we're we're introducing new yeah. uh, old white dudes to replace the old white dudes that yeah. have died. So I guess we'll see where that goes. And you know, yet these old white dudes are even a little less sympathetic. I I guess. Yeah, and well, yeah, certainly, and I think it, you know, it also, um, in, in a certain sense, I mean, like, I think it's really interesting that that uh, Deeper Throat is not yeah. a part of any of this. Like, where, where, where is he? What is he doing? Like, yeah. who does he work for? He's not a part of the conspiracy because well, he's not in the room. I guess my, so, I guess my question is, I don't know if Deep Throat w- would have been in the room where he's still alive. Yeah, I think that's a great question. We we don't know. You know, is, I mean, because is he a level below that? Maybe. It's certainly possible. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I think it's an interesting question. I I don't know that we have enough information to say one way or the other. But I think what we do know is that the conspiracy is not against murdering people to cover things up. And so maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But they were worried enough about what he knew to kill him. Yeah. And they were worried enough about what Mulder's father knew to kill him. Yeah. Yeah. And yet they're trying to still discredit Mulder. I don't know. Well, no, no. I guess at this point they are trying to kill him. So <laughs> yeah, they're, yeah. they're just trying to kill everybody. Yeah, maybe they'll just, you know, set off a bomb. Um, I guess a couple of last minute notes that I have is, first of all, they're pivoting Froicky and I like him now. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. I, I, I think they figured out a, a li- his character a little better. He's... He's the I, I think they're making him gross to hide a sensitive soul, which happen you know, which comes out when he's drunk. But uh, yeah, I, I, I I'm liking where the lone gunmen are going. I didn't really get into them at first, but I think they're figuring out how to write them and what to do with them a little better. Good. I'm glad because I like the I like the lone gunman a lot. I think they're one of yeah. my favorite elements of the show. And you know that that scene with Frohickey where he shows up at at, at Scully's yeah. apartment. There there's almost sort of a um a paternal kind of feeling yeah. to that scene. You know, Scully, Scully is taking care of him. Yeah. You know, it's not that Frohickey is there to, to grossly hit on Scully. No. At all. And, and I think that their relationship is, is evolving beyond that. And also I think they, they, Scully has a relationship with the lone gunman now. Yeah. That yeah. Yeah. Is separate from the relationship that they have with Mulder. Yeah. And I mean, even later on when he comes in to tell her about her sister being, you know, in the hospital again he's 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 figured out how to be kinder in a way in a way perhaps she's passed a certain kind of weird initiation and become a person to him but yeah yeah you know at at this point he does recognize that i i think they have a right to be suspicious of scully when they first meet her but by now they know they know what side she's on they know what where she's willing to go and they know what she's capable of and She's cool now. She's been vetted, I guess. <laughs> I think it's 
the show is making a point of having now both Scully and Mulder having lost their sister and father. Uh, there is they, – they it's evening them out a little more even. You know, they, they, they are – Scalder and Mulder are – Scalder – Scalder? Scalder. Uh, well, I was just about to say they're becoming kind of the same person in two different aspects in a way. that it, it, it is a case where it's one character played by two people, the two different halves, the uh, mind that's willing to go further, but the, you know, the rational part. And again, it's just putting them in the same position. Um, yeah. And also, finally, I really loved Scully's line of, you know, when she finds out about the dates of... Uh, What's his, you know, the guy from Dover, Delaware getting killed is after the, uh, after Mulder's disappearance and it's a very sloppy mistake and, you know, she has that line, could they have been so stupid, which I happened to watch that episode on the day that Donnie Jr. tweeted out that email, so, uh, yes, they can be that stupid. (laughs) And we hope that they continue to be that stupid. (laughs) No, like, I, I, I... I think it's a very apt because at at a certain point you have power that is so cocky about itself that it slips up. It makes these stupid mistakes, which again go back to Skinner's plan. Skinner's plan hinges on them thinking that he's cocky enough to make the stupid mistake of keeping the tape on him and going into a stairwell with no backup. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and I, th- I think that's. Uh... Maybe that's a good place to leave these two episodes. All right. Well, if you have any thoughts on either of the episodes of the X-Files we just talked about, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at tuninginshow.com. Tuning in is listener supported. If you would like to give us a little bit of your hard-earned money, we would very much appreciate it. You can go to patreon.com slash truckaboutshow. Check out our reward tiers. And uh, if you are enjoying the podcast, uh, please do give. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Our username there is Tuning In Show. Please go follow us, like us, share us, whatever people do with social media. I don't know. I don't use Twitter much anymore, and my life is better for it. <laughs> and as always, please leave us an iTunes review for Tuning In. It is the best way for new people to find the show. Next week, we are out of the conspiracy, Aww. back to normal, season three of The X-Files. We're talking about the episodes DPO and Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose. Oh, you mentioned say, that episode. I have mentioned that episode, and I will just say this. It was written by Darren Morgan. Okay. The same person who wrote Humbug. I'm ready. So this, this is when... Season three, like I said last week, is I think when The X-Files mm. becomes the show that everyone remembers it as. Yeah, well, so, again, makes sense considering that then the next season will be when it becomes the huge front, you know, the huge hit. So, yeah. Yeah, so strap in for that next week. DPO and Clyde Bruckman's final repose. Mac, why do you?